Welcome, listeners, to the next chapter of Southern Grimoire. I'm your host, K.D. Burr. This week's episode is a special one. Up until now, Southern Grimoire has brought you the spookiest stories and strangest legends from Oklahoma. But now, your favorite village witch is branching out. Southern Grimoire has been expanded to include hair-raising mysteries, legends, and lore from all across the country. And this week's chapter is about a place that holds a special spot in my memories. Louisiana. My grandfather lives in Bossier City, and for a time, his work took him all over the state. He told me colorful tales about his travels, about sprawling plantations, steamy bayous, and strange locals. He sent my sister and me voodoo dolls from an odd shop in Alexandria, and postcards from Baton Rouge, Lafayette, and Natchitoches. I built Louisiana up in my mind as a place of mystery and wonder, and when I finally visited for myself, I wasn't disappointed. Louisiana's history is rich with legend and superstition, and the air is thick with honeysuckle, humidity, and the hint of something wild. New Orleans is one place that has no shortage of twisted tales and haunted history, and in the 1930s, the area gained notoriety for a frightening specter terrorizing one of the city's oldest neighborhoods. In 1938, a young couple was traveling home from a night out when a shadowy figure stepped out into the road, motioning for them to stop. They slowed the car and rolled down the window, and the figure approached them. It was too dark to see the person clearly, but there was something distinctly inhuman about its presence. The figure asked in a man's voice for a ride to a nearby town. The couple, feeling uneasy, declined as politely as they could and went on their way. A few miles down the road, they saw something that made their blood run cold. It was the same man, beckoning in the same way from the shadows. Thinking the sighting must have been some kind of trick, the couple sped off down the road. About ten minutes after their second sighting, they saw the man again. The couple slowed down. The man approached, and in the same unsettling voice as before, he asked for a ride. It was unmistakable. It was indeed the same man, but there was no possible way he could have made it down the road so quickly. The couple drove away again, only to see him a fourth time. They did not slow their car, and as they passed, they watched in horror as the man began to twist and writhe, changing form before their very eyes. The couple would later say they saw the devil himself before them. By this point, they felt as if they were fleeing for their lives. Rather than heading home, they decided to drive straight to the police station. Before they made it into town, they saw the ghastly figure one last time, riding a brown horse remarkably quickly down the lane, right next to their vehicle. They made it to the police station and shakily recounted their experience. Several officers went out to investigate, 
sure that some fun was being had at their expense. When they searched the lane the couple described, they were shocked to see that the strange man was there, still on horseback. The officers ordered him to stop, but instead, the man laughed and spurred his horse onward. The police fired shots at the man, but were astounded and afraid when he leapt off his horse, laughing maniacally. The man began to fling the officer's bullets back at them by hand. He took advantage of the officer's confusion to speed away on his horse once more. Later on, the police arrested a man they said was responsible for the frightening encounter. He was a strange man named Clark Carlton and had come from Arkansas. Upon interrogation, he told the officers some incredibly bizarre things, but he simply couldn't have been the sinister bullet-defying apparition because people were still reporting sightings while Carlton was in questioning. The Devil of Algiers, as the figure became known, was terrorizing couples across the city. He was described as being humanoid in appearance, but unnaturally tall, with eyes like a chicken and long black horns. Some couples reported to police that the man shapeshifted before their eyes, calling himself the devil. Everyone who encountered the devil of Algiers reported the same thing. Once they saw the figure, they were overcome with a sense of all-consuming dread. Many saw their lives flash before their eyes. Nearly all of the victims were plagued by reoccurring night terrors long after their unfortunate meeting with the devil. Nearly as quickly as he had appeared, the Devil of Algiers vanished from New Orleans, leaving countless questions and nightmares in his wake. Was it nothing more than a well-executed prank? Or did the Devil himself pay a visit to New Orleans? The 1930s was a good time for monsters in New Orleans. In 1932, two years after the mysterious appearance of the Devil, Witnesses were horrified to see a young girl stumbling down St. Anne Street, pale and covered in blood. Upon closer inspection, it was found that her wrists had been slit. Barely clinging to life, the girl was rushed to the hospital. After she was revived, she told police a shocking story. She said, that she had been kidnapped and held hostage by two brothers who fed off her blood when they returned home from work each night. The police could scarcely believe what they heard. The Carter brothers, Wayne and John, were known around town and seemed to be completely normal. The Carters were dock hands, working with many other young men, bringing in loads of fresh seafood off fishing boats. They were quiet and polite, and kept mostly to themselves, but never shied from a hard day's work. They were certainly not people you would expect to kidnap and torture little girls. The authorities went to the house the brothers shared, hoping to question them, but they hadn't yet arrived home. Due to the heinous nature of the young girl's allegations, the police decided to force the door. 
What they found inside the Carter home shocked even the most seasoned officer. Scattered throughout the home were 15 men and women, pale, weak, and nearly bloodless. Legend says that most were already dead, but three survived. Once the survivors were taken to safety, the police set a trap for the Carter brothers, lying in wait inside the house of horrors. It should have been an easy task to bring the brothers in, especially considering the officers took them by surprise. But ten of New Orleans' best struggled to subdue Wayne and John. It's important to note that the Carters were of rather diminutive size, around 5 foot 5 and less than 160 pounds. They easily fought off the police, fled to the balcony, and leapt off into the night. But while the brothers were lightning fast and deceptively strong, it seems they didn't possess supernatural intelligence. Though they were wanted men, they still showed up for work the next day, and this time the authorities were better prepared. They arrested Wayne and John Carter for murder. They were quickly found guilty and hanged in the town square. Rumors about the brothers persisted, and the whispers around town grew to roars. The citizens feared that the Carters were not just any monsters, but were in fact vampires. It was agreed that the brothers' bodies should be exhumed and investigated, but their caskets were empty. Legend says that though the Carters had vanished from New Orleans, their reign of terror continued with their victims. One of the survivors pulled from the Carter home was said to have become a killer himself, insatiably murdering nearly 300 victims and dissolving their bodies in acid. Locals say that every year, on Mardi Gras, Wayne and John Carter returned to celebrate with the city they loved most, taking advantage of the chaos to revel and feast. New Orleans is said to be a haven for creatures like the Carters, with one of its most famed undead residents being the dignified Jacques Saint-Germain. Jacques was thought to be the descendant of the Count de Saint-Germain, but much of his past is cloaked in mystery. Various documents and records have described a similar man of the same name throughout multiple periods of history. The Count de Saint-Germain was well-educated and well-traveled. Said to be of an incomparable intellect, the Count, who considered himself an alchemist, spent most of his time researching and conducting strange experiments. Despite widespread reports of his death, the Count continued to be cited all over Europe. His alleged descendant, Jacques Saint-Germain, arrived in New Orleans in 1902, determined to make a home there. After settling in, he invited members of New Orleans High Society for a lavish feast. Though revelers enjoyed a large selection of the finest delicacies, Jacques himself didn't touch a bite content to drink deeply from a goblet of red wine. Despite showing great hospitality during the festivities, after the party was over, 
Jacques seemed intent on keeping to himself. Rumors swirled among New Orleans' elite, with many attempting to explain Jacques' odd behavior. After a strange and macabre turn of events, they finally had their answer. Jacques Saint-Germain was witnessed kidnapping a woman from a local pub. One of the woman's friends gave chase, following them to Saint-Germain's mansion. The man pounded on the door, demanding Saint-Germain release his friend. The woman was able to fight him off and escape outside, where her friend was horrified to see the bite marks on her neck, so deep that they had drawn blood. The frightened woman and her friend reported the incident to the authorities. When police arrived to Saint-Germain's home, they found shelves full of glass vials and bottles, filled to the brim with blood. By this time, Jacques Saint-Germain had already disappeared, though there were reported sightings of a man resembling him across the state for quite some time. The most horrifying monster to stalk New Orleans wasn't a disappearing specter or a bloodthirsty creature of the night. She was a flesh and blood woman, as real as you or me. In 1834, the old French Quarter was home to some of New Orleans' richest and most highly regarded families. Their well-maintained mansions, visible reminders of their status and wealth. In April of that year, one of these massive estates caught fire, causing quite a scene in the well-to-do neighborhood. Onlookers noticed the madam of the house, Delphine LaLaurie, dripping with furs and jewels and frantically trying to save more. Madame LaLaurie was wealthy enough to own several servants, yet none of them were helping her. Had they abandoned her out of fear of the rising flames? When her neighbors inquired as to their whereabouts, a frazzled LaLaurie told them to mind their own business. According to legend, the growing crowd was suddenly distracted by cries coming from inside the mansion. As neighbors and witnesses rushed inside, Delphine LaLaurie and her trusted driver Bastion rode off for the docks. Rescuers followed the panicked shouts to the heavily padlocked attic, where they quickly broke the door down. What they found inside would make shockwaves throughout the city. It's difficult to separate fact from myth concerning the horrors that were locked in the mansion's expansive attic. There are a few facts on record, published in local papers immediately after the discovery. The Lilari's slaves were found shackled, horribly beaten, and nearly starving. They wore spiked collars, and many were covered in bloody welts, some festering with infection. One publication reported that seven slaves were found barely alive, mutilated and hanging by their necks. Another slave had a large open head wound, crawling with maggots. But other accounts of the twisted discovery began circulating, some apparently corroborated by witnesses. It was said the fire that destroyed Lalari Mansion was set by their cook, an elderly slave who had been chained to the stove. Driven half-mad by the things she had seen in the house, 
she decided that death was the better option. And for many of those locked away in the attic, that may have been true. Townsfolk were saying that slaves had been crammed into small cages, some missing their eyes, fingernails, and ears. A few had their mouths stuffed with leaves, wood shavings, and worse, with their lips sewn shut. One slave had apparently had her bones broken and grotesquely reset until she resembled a crab. Though cruelty to slaves was not unheard of by any stretch, this caliber of depravity was shocking and unusual, particularly because Delphine Lalari simply didn't seem like the type to engage in such activities. She was a warm hostess, widely seen as kind and generous by the community. Her public persona was the picture of grace and hospitality, but her close neighbors knew better. They had whispered about the Lalaris for years. What made Madame into monster? Was it a product of nature or nurture? Marie Delphine McCarty was born into New Orleans high society and lived a fantastically privileged life for the time. By most accounts, her childhood was without strife no dark beginnings that would hint at the depravity that would occur in the French Quarter years later. Some attribute her cruel streak to the murder of her uncle, killed by slaves in 1771, but his death occurred 16 years before Delphine was born. Others tend to think that her third marriage to the mysterious Dr. Louis Lalari is what turned the young socialite murderous. Dr. Lalari was rumored to have a fascination with voodoo and the occult, and soon after their union, various citizens began to report incidents of abuse to the authorities. However, none of those allegations were taken seriously until 1833, when a young slave girl committed suicide rather than face whatever punishment Madame Lalari had in store for her. Less than a year after the young girl's death, the mansion burned down and the starving slaves were discovered. A mob descended upon the home, intending to ransack the place and bring Delphine to justice, but she was already gone, leaving her priceless valuables and a legacy of horror behind. According to various journal entries and letters left behind by Delphine's children, she successfully escaped to Paris and led a quiet life, never bringing harm to anyone again. Some take this as evidence that Madame Lalari was mentally ill and didn't recognize what she had done. Others believe that it was in fact Dr. Lalari who tortured the slaves, and that Delphine herself was a victim of his cruelty. Perhaps the truth falls somewhere in between. But the horrors uncovered on Royal Street haunt the city of New Orleans to this day. That's all for this chapter of the Grimoire. For more information on these stories, and others like them, follow me on Instagram at Southern Grimoire, or find my page on Facebook. Until next time, listeners, remember, there is no darkness that cannot be overcome by light.